Hey crew, before we get started today, a bit of an overture. As you may know, for the last couple of years, we've hosted a live panel show at ConvergenceCon in Minneapolis for a live audience every year, and we generally talk about a specific Star Trek film. Last year, we talked about Star Trek 2009. This year, of course, there was no ConvergenceCon, nor any other con, really, besides virtual ones, and so our planned discussion of Star Trek Nemesis was postponed. But... Not to be denied, we arranged our own virtual panel to talk about this. Not very good, but perfect for 2020 Star Trek film. And we had a discussion-slash-therapy session about it that is at least better than getting bit by a murder hornet infected with COVID that really misses seeing movies in theaters. Our original plan was to livestream our discussion, but wah-wah, that didn't work out from a technological perspective. So podcast it became, and we present that discussion in full for you here today. I want to say thanks to everyone who participated and also maybe sorry, depending on how they feel about the film. We had a great lineup of podcasters and frequent guests on this show to talk about this movie. Please go check out their respective podcasts, which are impressive. Hope you enjoy our talk and that you're a big fan of Dune Buggies. Stay healthy and safe. And with that, let's get underway. Hailing Frequencies Open, and welcome to Enterprising Individuals, the Star Trek discussion podcast that boldly goes into excruciating detail about the series, characters, and stories of the Star Trek universe. I'm your host, Aaron Coker, a.k.a. Caliban, and Shinsan of Remus was a tragic figure who never got to live the life of Picard. But on the positive side, he never had to live through Picard's awkward mambo phase. Ugh. I'm joined on this episode by a panel of distinguished guests who will serve as our crew for this mission. First up, she is one half of the hosting duo behind Rosemary's Ladies, a comedy film podcast where two mythical bitches do witty retellings of horror movies, bad movies, and bad horror movies. It's Jen Dahlman. Jen, welcome back to the show. Thank you. It's great to have you, Jen. Next up, a musician and a podcaster and the co-host of podcasts like Pro Wrestling Required Viewing, Virtual Theater, and the podcast Backtrekking, a show that looks at the inspirations behind classic episodes of Star Trek. It's Gooey Fane. Gooey, welcome back to the show. Hello. Hi. Gooey, it's great to have you here. Our next guest, she's the co-host of the Generations Geek podcast, a more or less family-friendly celebration of geekdom. She's also the co-host of Discoverage, a live podcast discussing Star Trek Discovery, Picard, and beyond. It's Ella Pearson. Ella, welcome back to the show. My pleasure. Great to talk to you again. And finally, he's a Star Trek fan, a cosplayer, and the co-host of the Delta Flyer podcast, as well as the Stargate Weekly podcast. It's Thad Haight. Thad, welcome back to the show. I'm glad to be back. It's good to talk to you again. You've all been granted permission to come aboard. Tonight, we'll be talking about the film Star Trek Nemesis, the last of the Star Trek TNG films. When Star Trek The Next Generation premiered in the fall of 1987, Gene Roddenberry and crew were rolling the dice and gambling that a defunct but well-loved series from the 60s could find new life in a reimagined and more contemporary form. And implausibly, it did. 
breaking viewing records and spawning a number of spin-off shows that were critically acclaimed and well-received by eager viewers. When the time came to put TNG out to pasture, it seemed only natural that the next-gen crew would follow in the footsteps of the original series crew and transition to feature films. But unlike the TOS crew, TNG never quite found its footing at the multiplex. The first full TNG film, First Contact, was a critical and financial hit, but each subsequent film seemed to prove that the crew of the Enterprise-E were searching for something they weren't quite finding. Finally, in 2002, Star Trek Nemesis premiered, a film intended to recenter the world of TNG films after the disappointing performance of Star Trek Insurrection. Instead, the failure of Nemesis would lead to the shuttering of the TNG film franchise, which would soon be followed by the cancellation of Star Trek Enterprise in 2005, leaving viewers without any Star Trek to watch on screens big or small. But what exactly went wrong? How did the TNG crew lose its way? And was it audience fatigue or franchise mismanagement that proved to be Picard's true nemesis? And we'll talk about that a little later in the show. Usually at this point in an Enterprising Individuals episode, I ask my guests uh, about their backstory, about how they first became a Trek fan. But you've all been on the program before, and we've talked about your histories with Trek. So instead, let's talk about your history with Star Trek Nemesis. Do you remember the first time that you saw Nemesis and your initial reaction to it? And let's start with Jen. Jen, do you remember first seeing this movie? Yeah, um, I think I was probably about 12. We owned it on DVD, which means I currently own it because I stole a lot of my father's movies. Um, and I, I watched it and I liked it. And so when I found out we were talking about this movie, I literally texted my dad and I was like, did people not like Star Trek Nemesis? Like, <laughs> I get like, I was like, okay, I'm, I was 12 years old. Made a lot of questionable movie choices. I liked the Halle Berry Catwoman when I was 12. So, like, maybe I I made a lot of bad choices for movies back then. <laughs> I gotta is say, this, part... <laughs> this was not one of them. This is a good movie. On your podcast, you're watching horror movies, genre films, sometimes bad films. Could a bad Star Trek film ever make it onto the show? Ooh, I think I would like to do it. I don't know if my co-host, I don't think she's ever seen an episode of Star Trek. I don't think she has an interest in seeing Star Trek. Um, yeah. I think potentially I would maybe do Insurrection because I remember I bought it. I turned it on. I watched 10 minutes and then I turned it off. And wow. that is all I've seen of Insurrection. Maybe it was better. I just remember not liking the first 10 minutes of it. You know, not having seen Star Trek is not a prerequisite for directing a Star Trek movie. I we'll learned, that yes, learned later. that apparently. <laughs> I know that you covered Hellraiser on your show recently. Were you getting a little pinhead vibe off of Shinzon like I, I was? I was, and I have to say, I was a big fan of his costume. But I, I definitely <laughs> yeah. thought I was like, I'm getting some Hellraiser vibes. I have such lame sights to show you. <laughs> Gooey, do you remember the first time you saw Nemesis? I do. I remember so much about it because I, I, I think it was maybe in like 2012. I watched it for the first oh, time, actually. OK, sure. Yeah, this was after going through all Star Trek on Netflix uh, and then watching the movies with some friends. And then I remember I remember everything about uh, Nemesis because I, I remember at the time I was living by myself and I was like, I haven't seen Nemesis is the only one I hadn't seen. And I was like, all right, I'm going to I'm going to have a good night. I'm going to I got a pizza. I got root beer. I was like personal <laughs> night. 
gonna relax and watch the old crew I love. And I got to a certain part in the movie, at, I remember, and I was like, I can't do this anymore. And I stopped watching it. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then I eventually watched the whole thing, like, last year. And then this is my second time watching it in full. <laughs> Just imagining a young gooey just sitting with his pizza cold, uneaten. Yeah, I, I was into his root beer. <laughs> <laughs> uh, on the podcast that we host together, Backtracking, we talk about the events or media that inspired Trek episodes. And we've got an episode coming up this week about the connection between The Wrath of Khan and Star Trek Into Darkness. But after watching this, I feel like we could have just talked about Wrath of Khan and this film. Oh, sure. Yeah. I, I, my analogy I would make, even though it doesn't share thematics with it i just feel like this is the next gen's star trek 5 because where <laughs> yeah, it kind of goes off the rails a little bit yeah but they're missing like uh maybe star trek 6 um depends on if you like 3 and 1 or not uh they're missing some of the good ones though yeah, yeah maybe that's true <laughs> ella when did you first see star trek nemesis Oh, I'm sure that I must have been like 12 too. Um, I'm certain I watched it with my dad. And um, I don't remember like hating it or loving it. I just kind of remember being like <laughs> there. <laughs> yeah, it's a movie. <laughs> um, and then uh, when I watched it today, I was like, oh, I'm still going to like, I'm going to enjoy it. I haven't seen it in so long. Like, I feel like usually I kind of enjoy movies, even if they're like bad. I'm like, oh, I have a good time, whatever. <laughs> And it was so brutal to watch it today. And there's they're putting a new boiler in, in my building. And so I'd be watching Nemesis and then I have to pause it because of like the sound of just pipes like banging together. <laughs> and it just became like this entire situation. Anyways, it was a <laughs> it was rough. As somebody who experienced TNG secondhand post-air, mm-hmm. what was your reaction to seeing the shift in the TNG characters from TV to films? Because they change a little. Yeah, I guess it's they've just always the movies have always felt like detached to me. Like it doesn't feel the same, and obviously it doesn't really play the same. Especially Nemesis is kind of odd. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I guess I don't really I I never rewatch them. I don't really think about them in my head as like canon. I mean, obviously like Data dies or whatever, and that's there. But I don't. I just don't really. <laughs> I don't really think about them or watch them ever. <laughs> yeah, we don't. We don't talk about that. No. Dad, what about you? Do you remember seeing Nemesis for the first time? I do. Uh, I wanted to see it in the theater, but didn't get a chance. Uh, I was in 10th grade in high school when it first came out. Mm-hmm. I, mean, I remember it came out around Christmas time, but I was doing other things. I didn't get a chance to see it in the theater. So I watched it when it came out on DVD. Um, I did make it through the entire thing, but there were a couple scenes where I almost turned it off. <laughs> Yeah, just out of like uh, disappointment and disgust, or yeah, more or less. Yeah, it's it's weird because I remember seeing. I must have. I thought I saw it when it came out, I believe, and you know, I didn't walk out or anything. But I remember thinking, "Come on, get good. I know it's going to get good." <laughs> and uh, yeah, it just never really does. Star Trek Day was yesterday. Uh, did you get to see any of the panels? I haven't seen the panels yet because I was working when they were on, and then last night I was watching Nemesis for this. 
Oh yeah, well of course. <laughs> I appreciate that. Uh, a lot of my a lot of people, myself included, were expecting a bunch of announcements about shows and properties that CBS has in development, uh, or possibly some new properties. And there like wasn't really there wasn't a lot of announcements. Uh, we got a Discovery season three trailer, and that's about it. Uh, other than what they're they've already announced that they're working on, is there anything specifically you'd like to see them develop as a show? My personal wish that I really wish they would do. I'm not sure that it'll ever actually, I, in fact, I'm positive it will never happen. But what I would love to see would be them to develop the um, Star Trek novel series, the Vanguard series into a television show. That could be really, that could be really, really good. I'd have to imagine that. I feel like they've taken kind of here and there little bits and pieces of a lot of um, David Max stuff put it into some of the shows. Uh, yes. Discovery season two is a, is a big example of that, uh, which he is totally gracious about. But I just think it's funny how the cross-pollination in the Star Trek universe works in that way. I would really like to see um, a property with uh, Janeway, with Kate Mulgrew, um, who's out there, uh, is doing stuff. And, uh, you know, I don't know how much she's acting except for things like... Uh, Orange is the New Black, but uh, I'd like to see what happens when Janeway becomes a vice admiral. Yeah, that's one thing I definitely noticed while watching the movie is this movie takes place one year after Endgame, and she has gone from <laughs> captain <laughs> a to three-star yes. admiral. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Kind of deserve it after all that, yeah. you know? <laughs> I guess I she did. Yeah, it's, it's all back pay, and yeah, yeah. Um but yeah, I just think that the, they could do something with that. And so she's sort of new to the uh, the Admiral office, you know, and people maybe don't respect her and see what we get you out of that. You want an office drama? Well. That'd be kind of cool. Yeah, or, or just a straight <laughs> office drama. Yeah, she just is the Michael Scott character uh, in over her head. Well, thanks everybody for being here. Uh, at this point in a normal episode of the show, I usually ask my guest why they chose the particular episode that they did to discuss. But tonight, it's going to be a little different. This has not been so great a year, I don't have to tell you, for just about everyone. And I thought it would only be fitting to talk about a not-so-great Star Trek film for this year's panel. You know, last year's show was about reconciling with Star Trek 2009, trying to bury the hatchet with a pretty good film that, however ham-handedly, was trying to reignite filmgoers' enthusiasm for Star Trek cinema, an enthusiasm that was phasered, torpedoed, rammed into, and exploded seven years before by the film that we're talking about today, Star Trek Nemesis. Is Nemesis the worst Star Trek film? Who can say? It's certainly the lowest grossing Star Trek film. As for its critical standing, it sits at 38% on Rotten Tomatoes, behind the motion picture at 41, Generations at 49, and Insurrection at 54, and it sits handily above the worst rated Star Trek film, The Final Frontier, at 21%. But what does our panel think? What's the worst Star Trek film? Jen. Um... I'd probably go with the motion picture. I won't count insurrection despite like I only saw the 10 minutes, so I can, I will not judge it. Like, oh, right, I, I won't, that's, right. okay. that's totally <laughs> sure. out of the running. Cause I don't want to <laughs> say, Oh, just because I didn't like the first 10 minutes, it's the worst one. So that's judicious of you. Okay. Motion picture. <laughs> motion picture. Vote for motion picture. Gooey. What about you? Uh, into darkness. <laughs> Into Darkness? We did. We just did that whole... It's very fresh in your mind. ...episode, and yeah, my pain <laughs> is very at the forefront there. I find, and this happened to me with 2009, which 
I can see I, I it's I think it's a pretty good movie, but I hated it, you know, when I saw it in the theater just because how different it was. And I had to watch it like six or seven times to talk about it last year. And I found myself like liking it more and more. I don't know if it was Stockholm Syndrome <laughs> or me just being won over by it or just the presence of it. You know, you think of cartoons and shows and things that kids love because they saw it when they were kids. And if you look at it objectively now, it's like, that's not so good. But it's just people are used to it. And after watching this a couple times, I'm not so down on Nemesis as I used to be. I would say that with 2009, like it, it wouldn't have to exist if this movie didn't exist. So I'm a little bit more down on it. Ella, what about you? I, I think it's Nemesis. <laughs> I can just personally, I can enjoy the JJ Trek movies. I completely understand and agree with almost all <laughs> of the criticisms about them. But, um, you know, I can kind of, I can have fun with it. And yeah. I did not have fun watching <laughs> this today. <laughs> uh, you needed some pizza and some root beer, maybe. Uh, <laughs> I, absolutely, I did. Thad, what's your least favorite Star Trek film? Well, I will say that I love two of the three J.J. Uh, Abrams films, uh -huh. but the one that I don't love, uh, Into Darkness, I would put below every other Star Trek film. Nemesis is second from the bottom for me, but uh, Into Darkness just pisses me off in a way that Nemesis <laughs> doesn't. <laughs> I can. I, I watched it recently. I, I can understand that. Uh, it's funny how uh, I won't go through like the box office of all the films, but it's funny how people's Hatred of the films maps pretty well onto the box office. So I don't know if people not seeing it or just seeing it once and being like, uh, translates, you know, to them uh, not buying a ticket for it. But um, the, the, the lower end of those two scales is fairly similar. Of course, Star Trek V is on the bottom. For myself, I can't bring myself to fully hate Star Trek V. I think the circumstances of its creation are vastly different than that of Nemesis. You know, when they made five, they had a first-time director in Shatner. There was tension behind the scenes, and they had a writer strike and teamster strike and budget cuts. And it still made sixty-three million in nineteen eighty-nine money, which is more than the Nemesis uh, adjusted for inflation. And Nemesis was developed arguably at like the height of Trek's power and popularity. Uh, they had an award-winning screenwriter, and the whole cast was on board. And we got we got Nemesis. So it's hard to parse the difference between the financial disparities and the critical disparities. Star, Star Trek V is a little bit more like thought provoking than Nemesis too. Like even if it's not, uh -huh. it's kind of clunky. You at least got some cool concepts <laughs> in there. Clunky is a good way to describe <laughs> Star Trek V, I think for sure. It's, I mean, it's it, fun too at times. It, it Yeah, well, sometimes. It adds interesting things to the franchise that they never followed up on. I mean, like this is the movie they gave us Cybok, you know, <laughs> Cybok. Uh, before and Chuck, <laughs> yeah, right. It stands up there with Cybok on Mount Trek. I mean, it's a it's a movie where we find out that Bones euthanized his dad. I mean, there's some heavy yeah. stuff in Star Trek Five. Oh, man, do you guys like Nemesis? Uh, we know that that, or excuse me, that Jen likes the, a Nemesis. So we'll get to her in a little bit. Um, but Thad, what do you think about Nemesis overall? You said uh, it's your second least. I would not favorite. classify it as a movie I like. No, <laughs> <laughs> it's it's on the other side, the wrong side of like. Okay. Yeah, Ella, what about you? You really hate it, I guess, huh? Yeah, I don't know. Like, I wouldn't be like, oh, I hate that movie, like, and be mad. But I just, I don't love it. <laughs> 
It's not my favorite. <laughs> Gooey, you're a you're a pretty magnanimous guy. I mean, can you see the bright side in, in Star Trek uh, Nemesis? Yeah, I think there's stuff in it that would be like make for some cool stuff. Like I, I, I like maybe a idea of like a Reman Romulan conflict like that. And I, I do I actually did like how kind of like over the top monstrous like movie villain they kind of looked. I thought that could be, be kind of cool as like these guys who are like monsters are actually kind of like oppressed or something like that, you know, a story around that is interesting and i did like i did like shinzon's outfit uh <laughs> i'll get down with that too <laughs> so like conceptually it's <laughs> cool you know and seeing like the romulan senate and some of their some of their costumes too look kind of cool it looked a little a little cheesy or something but i i liked it i wonder if it would be because the whole thing feels kind of small to me like the only real exteriors that they do are, are for the the driving scene and the romulan senate is like cool but maybe star trek films have always had a kind of tv a smaller sensibility but the whole thing feels just kind of small to me um not in a like a terrible like movie ruining way but it just kind of feels mm. kind of low budgety and you know it costs like upwards of 60 million uh, so i don't know i thought of one other thing i like because i i've been bringing it up on the past couple episodes of our show backtracking that I want to see uh, battle bots. I want them to see make ships into like robots that fight each other and smash into each other. And this one, they had the Picard slams the Enterprise into whatever the Riemann ship is, and I that sort of fulfilled that dream of mine to see two ships smush together. <laughs> yeah. Anybody catch that the the scimitar looks like a lionfish, and of course Picard. Had a lionfish in his Whoa. aquarium in his uh, in his ready it's room. Because they're the same years. person. Oh. <laughs> oh God, <laughs> Jen, tell me um, why this movie um, works for you, or what's winning about it's it. Okay, it's definitely not a perfect movie. There, I I, I totally <laughs> understand why people don't like it. I completely understand. There are a lot of issues, but I do like. Um, I like sort of like seeing Picard have to like see, you know, he never got married. He never had kids, but he has kind of a, a paternalistic role with a lot of people on the ship and seeing them sort of get married and and move on to other ships and mm -hmm. and sort of move on with his life while he stays there. Um, I think I like seeing that. And then um sort of the discussion of like what what makes us human and Picard says it's the trying to be a better person or just trying to be better the next day than you were before whatever that's what it is to be human and the the idea that yeah it's not what what your genetics are that doesn't really like just because you have the same genes or the same blood as someone doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to, to be the same person and how Shinzon really can't like understand that their life experiences um, for one make them different. But also I think data just says like, even if you had experienced the same things he would, he had, he wouldn't, you wouldn't be doing the same thing that he's doing. So even though, even if you're literally the same genetics, yeah. same experiences, you can still turn out completely different. There is, there's a real current of that, you know, throughout the movie. And it's, and that's a great point about 
Picard's been doing this for years. Like he's been sort of parenting or kind of shepherding data into humanity. And then, and then Shinzon's like, you know, well, what's, I want to be a human or, or what's it? I want to touch a human woman's hair. We know that much. <laughs> um, and uh, it, but it's all like, I don't know. It's so on the surface and yet it's so unexplored. Yeah. I think if they had cut out the, like the 45 minutes of action at the end <laughs> that yeah. no one asked for and instead yeah. tried to get like focus deeper on, on those sort of issues, I think it would have turned out better. Obviously yeah. big part of the problem is when you have a director who says, no, I'm not going to watch the show. Yeah. Yeah. That's not great. And they did want to, plug a lot of action into the, the the film and a lot of the stuff you know reportedly there's you know a half an hour like 40 minutes of deleted scenes mm-hmm. a, a lot of the deleted scenes you can see on youtube or on the dvd and a lot of it they're not really great but they are that um, more emotional part of it it's all it's more scenes with picard and data it's him still kind of striving at this point in his existence data to to understand humans and it's Bev talking to Picard about his future and stuff. And I, 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 you can see where they were going, but, and I'm not one of these people that thinks that like a, a director's cut can solve everything. You know, it's, it's fine to do a, to be Ridley Scott or Zack Snyder and do an extended cut of your film. But you know, what people see is kind of what they get. And like, you're right. Like what we get is I think a pretty cool ship battle at the end and a really long dune buggy scene <laughs> for some reason. And it just, oh it, re- it really, really, it really drains a lot of, uh, I think, the significance out of the film. Something else that I, I thought was interesting was that, um, you know, you were talking about him trying to convert Shinzon or, or reach out to him. In all four TNG films, he reaches out to the bad guy in that Picard way, and they all pretty much turn it down and all have to be blown up, which is so weird. Like, what would happen if, you know, they didn't know this was going to be the last TNG film, but there was a good chance. What if he did, like turn Shinzon around? What if he did convert him? Like, what if he did make him see his humanity and he just goes to a prison island and thinks about (laughs) his life for a while or something like that? You know, we don't get that. And the only time of, the only really redemption that we get is in Insurrection where they get the Sona, uh, besides um, Salieri, to to sort of turn around and unite them with their uh, families again. It's there's not a lot of the the kind of a heartfelt emotion and learning that you get on the TV show in the films. Mm-hmm. And one of the other things I like that I think they more focused on it in the deleted scenes is, and I would have liked to see more in the movie is Picard, like sort of having to deal like mentally deal with the fact that one, his DNA was stolen two, there's a clone made and three, <laughs> he's not the only like, you know, sort of like I was saying, sort of that individuality that we each have, like, and that's something yeah. they kind of talked about in the deleted scene, like he's having a really hard time with the fact that there's another Picard out there. Yeah. What I don't really believe is that he would worry at this point in his life when he's even mm. joking around with people and he's driving dune buggies. I don't <laughs> really believe that he would be worried that uh, he would he could have been Shinzon or that he could go bad. Um I think that he should be because they even this. I think this is important. And again, I don't think the movie really follows through on this, but they bring the photo album back, you know, and he's looking through the photo album. And the last time that we saw that was when his family died. And so I wish that they had played up more the idea of him seeing Shinzon as, again, a chance for the Picards to live on, 
not necessarily a son, but definitely somebody that he could mentor and not see this tortured soul who has been through a lot, let's be honest, um, fall into like just hate, you know, and uh, conquest. Yeah, there was a I did like their conversation when they when he first goes to meet Shinzon and you think like, oh, he just wants to be friends. And they, he's asking yeah, like, yeah. oh, were we Picards? Were we always explorers? And Picard, he gets this like faraway look in his eye and he's like, oh, let me tell you about, about the Picards. And I was the first one to go to space. And yeah, yeah. so I, I, there's stuff there, but it's definitely, it's very surface level. And that's all just recreational for Shinzon because the Viceroy comes in and he's like, hey, come on, <laughs> we, we got to do this plan. And Shinzon's like, I was just talking to him. Like he, he wants this, but he can't have it. it. It lacks nuance that you want. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, it certainly does. Thad, like as far as like Shinzon goes in the realm of Trek villains, <laughs> maybe just TNG, but maybe all the films, uh, where do you think he lies? Uh, oh, boy. Um, he is possibly just to cut in. He's possibly the most powerful villain. That's not like godlike that we've seen. I mean, he is in control of yeah, essentially the he entire does Romulan have a lot of power. empire. Um, we never see another Romulan in complete control of the empire. The closest would be Sila, but she's not really in complete control. Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, I guess Shinzon. If you if you're looking from a strictly character sense, yes, I I think he is a very powerful villain. If you're looking from a does the character work sense, ooh, that's harder. Um, what I'll <laughs> say you... <laughs> is I'm really glad this movie didn't ruin Tom Hardy's career. Oh, yeah. That's an interesting story. Well, we'll talk about that when we talk about the cast. Do you, do you think that um, do you think that the Tal Shiar was still decimated uh, after the Dominion War and, and Abertain's, uh, you know, his little shenanigans? Yeah, because they, they basically all got swept up in that uh if they had been around they de there definitely would have been sh some shenanigans there needed to be more backstabbing Romulan shenanigans honestly it's weird that a bunch of Nosferatu's could just like kind of walk in and like <laughs> take over the entire empire but mm -hmm. that's that's what we got just for the record what's everybody's fa uh, favorite Trek film Ella what's your favorite Trek film um Star Trek 4 Star Trek 4 <laughs> yeah Gooey what about you uh, yeah, I would say I would go with Star Trek four also tied with Khan maybe, but four has got so it's so fun. It's so likable. Yeah. Dad, what's your favorite Star Trek film? Uh, six. Nice. Star Trek six. I like that one too. What about you, Jen? Uh, the voyage home. It's, it's, it's so funny. It makes me laugh <laughs> so much. I I wish yeah I like it too and I and I want it, I want it so bad like Shinzon I want it to be my favorite but I've been talking about comedy on Trek on the show a lot recently and it absolutely succeeds it's like the exception that uh -huh. totally disproves my rule about how Trek can't be funny but just for some reason when I I laugh at it but it doesn't feel fully like a Star Trek film to me maybe for good or bad I I, I don't know um, <laughs> I that's why I kind of like it because like. A lot of Star Trek, even this the Nemesis, it feels like they do a lot of the same things that a lot of the other movies do. There's a guy, he wants revenge. He's got a big that's, ship. That's true. You know. That's absolutely like true. I, they, yeah, he's got a really, <laughs> the biggest ship. Yeah, right. Like, I like that they succeeded in doing a different genre, which I think you should do with more Star Trek films. Like, goof around with it. I'm surprised nobody said Khan. Uh, what do you guys think about the 
similarities between Khan and uh, and this film. Ooh, <laughs> I mean, I feel like even though Khan has such a small, like he has kind of a small backstory, and like you know, it's very like smaller. He has small moments in the movie, but like you, they just get so much yeah. more across with this character, and it's yeah, it's less complicated so it's like way i think it's way more effective thinking about like data's death in nemesis compared to how completely like (laughs) destroying it is when you watch spock's death scene like it's so much more like intense you feel it so much more i don't know yeah even now knowing that spock is eventually fine like i watched Khan recently and it's still I cry every time. It's so hard. <laughs> Me too. I can't. It's like I almost avoid watching yeah. it because I just cry. <laughs> I think part of the problem with Data's death is like it it doesn't matter because he at the end B4 is singing Blue Skies or whatever. And you're like, oh, so it didn't even matter. He's they're They're going to like yeah, call yeah. him Data now. And he's Data. Which the the ethical implications of that are chilling. And as usual, Jordy tries to raise a flag and nobody listens to him in the film. He's like, uh, should we be overwriting his brain with yours? No. Uh, nobody's going to listen. Okay, we're going forward with this. Data's like, look, Jordy, I, I got to die in like 60 minutes. So <laughs> yeah, that, you're going to have to get over it. That's going to happen. <laughs> it's it's so before is for me one of the most tragic characters in the entire franchise because you know this movie of course nobody liked it so we all tried to forget about it um they literally just had before become data essentially you know in the uh, in the books after this and then even when picard rolls around they go yeah it just didn't work and then we took him <laughs> apart and now he's in a drawer and that's it for data or for before like that's the end it's it's uh it's sad he didn't deserve that he's not and he gets compared to shinzon seriously as he arrives yeah he gets compared to shinzon in this sort of parallel that they've story that they've got going on between people that are related and before doesn't deserve that like he's he's not shinzon he didn't decide to do the things that shinzon did yeah before yeah. doesn't really even seem to understand like where he is or what's <laughs> going on yeah. It just seems really yeah. confused in general. Which is so weird for a couple reasons, because, of course, this movie was written by John Logan, uh, who is a friend of Brent Spiner's, uh, a great friend. And Brent Spiner contributed to the story of this film, along with Rick Berman. So if we know that, like, we know that Brent Spiner loves putting on cowboy hats <laughs> and doing funny voices when he gets a chance. They built him this character that's just so kind of nothing. It's not a chance for him to stretch his legs. It's not a chance to bring, like, Laura back and twist the mustache. He's just kind of not really much and they kill him off and when they kill him off it's got to be hard to replicate the emotions that a scene like uh spock's death scene um evokes Mm -hmm. in wrath of khan i think into darkness proved that but write him some scene that's more than just goodbye and then you know he blows up and that's kind of it like write something that tries to evoke a similar feeling instead of just brent spiner kind of wanting to leave because he doesn't feel like he can play data anymore yeah I would, I think, and I know, you know, the whole Data's whole story arc through the entire series is trying to understand what it's like to be human and kind of like Shinzon. And, but yeah. more than that, trying to understand human emotion. So I, I would have liked to see some sort of callback to, you know, 
maybe he gets to feel a human emotion. That's probably not going to happen because that's not how <laughs> robots work. But like trying to understand human yeah. emotion still like, you know, or, or trying to understand death in like that last minute. I think that, you know, there would have been something. Yeah. I feel like maybe they could set up like he makes like the sacrifice out of like some sort of feeling other than like his it's because it's like he of course he's like gonna protect captain picard we all know that right you know maybe if he makes a irrational but like emotional choice you know that would have been more effective yeah i agree it's it's hard to read too much into the film because i don't honestly think you know john logan is apparently a super you know, Trek fan and he's, he has written some, you know, good movies, but I don't think anybody thought about it all that much. No, I think we've thought about it a lot more than they have. <laughs> yeah, just in this show. Yeah. Yeah. I was really digging in and I was trying to think like, maybe it's, maybe he finally accepts that he's not human, that he, you know, is, is he has human qualities and he can be accepted as human, but he isn't because what really saves the day is that he's not human. Like what saves the day is that he can survive in a vacuum and fly from one ship to the other. Oh, I didn't like that. Uh, you know, I mean, it's, uh, if he was just a human, we'd all just have to watch Captain Picard blow up on this ship. But then the, the movie doesn't really, isn't thinking about that. I don't think. Yeah. I think they, they probably just set out to like, let's make like a big, cool action movie. And then we'll have some like, cool like things that people could think about in there and they have like the parallels between data and shinzan that they want to set up and it's like that in some movies that is good enough you know you can kind of draw your own kind of conclusions from it but it it just feels weird here (sighs) yeah (laughs) doing a lot of drawing my hand hurts well, just to say, uh, technically, before we continue, uh, this movie is, of course, the 10th Star Trek movie to come out, the fourth TNG or TNG-involved film. It came out on December 13th of 2002, and of course, it was written by John Logan, directed by Stuart Baird, produced by Rick Berman. The star date for the film is 56844.9, and the budget was $60 million or around there. It made $43 million domestically and 24 internationally for a worldwide total of around $67 million. It was rated PG-13 and has a runtime of 116 minutes. And let's talk about the people that made this film, the creative team. Uh, And we can discuss some facts uh, about the film in general. Um, If you don't know John Logan, he is a three-time Academy Award nominee. Uh, He was nominated for his work on Gladiator and The Aviator and also for Hugo uh, from 2011. And he started off as a playwright and turned into a screenwriter. He received the Tony Award for Best Play in 2010 for the play Red. And he's written for movies like Any Given Sunday, uh, The Last Samurai, Skyfall Inspector, Alien Covenant, and won a Golden Globe for writing Sweeney Todd. And um, yeah, uh, he's the real deal. But, you know, like, like I said before, he's a friend of Brent Spiner's. And he got Brent Spiner's help on this. And I never understand how somebody who's an actor, you know, people move behind the camera. Maybe they move off and do other stuff. But how does, like, the guy that plays Data get a story credit on a Star Trek film? You know, like, how does he get input? Um, Patrick Stewart doesn't have a credit, but we all know that, like, the driving scene and a lot of elements of the film were kind of suggested by him. Like, who's running the asylum here, the inmates or or the guards? That's Sometimes that's the problem with 
some of the some of the movies is uh you just give someone too much power and then they have too much creative control like maybe maybe star trek five i think shatner (laughs) maybe had a little bit too much to say i don't know (laughs) if they'd had the money it would have (laughs) worked rock monsters uh Uh, yeah (laughs) that's what i'm talking about um It's, you know, it's funny because, like, he's a mixed bag for me. Like, a lot of the things that he's worked on, they're good or things that he collaborated on. Um, I could take or leave his Bond films and Alien Covenant. You know, I don't know. I mean, uh, let's, oh, oh, no, I'm supposed to like Alien Covenant? Oh, no. Oh, no, 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 no. Like That's Alien my Covenant. reaction to <laughs> Alien Covenant. <laughs> but a lot of that could have been Ridley Scott. I mean, he, uh, you know, he was heavily involved in that. And the Aviators, it's yeah. okay. It's pretty good. Yeah. To come to think of it, like Alien Covenant, when I saw that and when I saw Spectre. That was the worst Trek film? <laughs> no. When I saw that and Spectre, I saw both those in theaters. And I remember distinctly went, leaving those going, uh, maybe these are running out of gas. He's... He's the he's the series killer. That's kind of how I feel. Oh, about definitely. It. Bring John Logan in to finish this thing oh, off. Oh yeah, that's a very good point. He might, yeah, it might not be his fault. Like they might be giving, he might be taking projects of like series that need to be like revitalized, but instead, like all of them are like they're on the bubble. Do another Bond. Do Alien again. You know, yeah. give us another make con you know we want to do another one but we also might just like cancel the whole thing and blow it up so john logan like that's the guy who like accepted the lowest bid and so he gets in there you know reading up on what he was looking for when he wrote this script he had epic plans for this film um the film was supposed to be about a third longer god imagine that and the ending battle was supposed to be bigger uh, there was a lot more care. What? Yeah, there's supposed to be like a fleet of like six Romulan ships that would come in and help out against the Scimitar. There's a lot more character work that he had in the scenes that were cut. I also think that like Logan, so Logan and the others in the production, especially I think Spiner too, were all hoping that they could do one more TNG film. And that one was going to be a celebration and a kind of send off of the TNG crew. And they were going to bring in the Titan, you know, Rikers on the Titan and other characters from other shows and have a sort of like how all good things was a send off, you know, for the TNG show. And, uh, you know, that, uh, yeah, that didn't happen. They Uh, counted their chickens. (laughs) And Stuart Baird was going to direct that one too. And if you don't know who Stuart Baird is, he is, it's funny because he is a very talented film editor who got to start working with, directors like Ken Russell and Richard Donner. Uh, and he had worked on Tommy, Superman, Lethal Weapon, Demolition Man, um, the first Tomb Raider film and the recent Tomb Raider film. And he actually was nominated for an Academy Award for his editing for Superman and for the film Gorilla and Gorillas in the Mist. And he has um, been nominated for a couple BAFTAs too. He had directed two films before this, neither of them all that great, Executive Decision and U.S. Marshals. And Nemesis, incidentally, was the last film that oh. he directed. Oh, no. Okay. Yeah. Is, is he still editing? He he's just... still editing, though, you know. Oh, no, he's still editing, for sure. Yeah. Uh, but, yeah, he never got a chance to hone his craft, I guess. Uh, he did not have a background in Star Trek. Uh, he was aware of the franchise. He never watched uh, any films that I that I know of. or any, I think he said at one point he had never watched the show. And Berman's excuse was that this would be fresh blood. You know, this guy can, he's directed two action films with one had Steven Seagal <laughs> in it. And uh, he's going to, he's going to come in here and, and shake things up. And uh, people were not, uh, people were not impressed uh, with his work. Apparently he 
Speaking of Alien, uh, he, he he like wanted to have that scene where Riker, you know, was fighting the Viceroy in the bowels of the ship. And he said, this is our alien scene here. This is going to be what? like Alien. Uh, and of course, ironically, Ron Perlman is in that scene who was in Alien Resurrection. <laughs> that whole scene makes no sense in the entire movie. And yeah, wow. <laughs> it, it absolutely I felt like doesn't. it was like, we got to give Riker something to do. Yeah, that's what it Which, felt like. Yeah, other movies, hero movies. moment. Yeah. yeah, other things handle it better when they just go, uh, "Okay, Picard is on whatever adventure, and Riker's actually the captain." And I think that's usually the best way to handle it is like make Riker the, you know, the Enterprise guy on, on the Enterprise, you know, which could easily happen on this. Yeah, but they did that last film. Yeah, I guess so. That's true. Yeah. Can't keep doing it again. <laughs> But they did a lot of stuff they've done before again, so I don't know. What really worries me about all of that is that the whole thing is the culmination of this side runner story where Shinzon and the Viceroy, I guess, are you know being predatory towards uh, Troy, and we have this whole kind of psychic, yeah. you know, mind violation <laughs> that's scene. That's awful. when I almost turned the movie off the first that's, time. Yeah, that's when I stopped yeah. watching the first time too. I was like, this is. And, Bogus. And so this is so this is Riker. You know, you raped my woman. This is him. You know, getting oh, his and uh, com- completing the circle. Right. So, well, um, my biggest regret is that <laughs> this is my favorite anecdote. In the scene where he kicks the viceroy to his death, he was he was scripted to have said, "Don't worry, hell is dark." Bam, and then kicks him off. That would be which way he better. Didn't like, <laughs> and that the test audiences so, didn't like. Ridiculous line to say. I know, I know. Steer into the ridiculousness of the film, but of course, it's not very Star Trek, and they cut it. But what do they know? It'd be great if Riker all of a sudden had like Seagal moves and (laughs) 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 yeah, he's just uh, somebody pulls a phaser on him and he does that the wrist thing and just knocks it out of his hand, and yeah, that would have been great. Picks up a guitar, starts playing. Well, we didn't get that. Uh, we did get a movie produced by Rick Berman. Anything Anything anybody wants to say about Rick Berman, just generally? That's an entire podcast in and of itself. Yeah. I think, I mean, if we're going to skip the specifics, it just seems to me like everybody was tired. You know, the cast is tired. The production's tired. Um, I think that Enterprise is a lot better than anybody gives it credit for, but it definitely shows mm-hmm. signs of just kind of, oh, whatever, just kind of goes off the rails a little. And I think that that really spread to... To this film, they talk about audience fatigue uh, in relation to this film, but I think production fatigue was a huge part of it all falling apart. I think it didn't help Fair. that the cast hated the director. Yeah, oh, they, 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 they yeah. still hate him. They're I still mad. Yeah. I think that it never was going to be a huge blockbuster success, but I think it could have been a decent film that did all right as far as Star Trek films go in the hands of a better yeah. director. Yeah, I, I agree. I think, yeah, in the hands of a director who, like, respected and appreciated the show for what it was. Yeah. That, and then I feel like, I just feel like they spread themselves too thin. Like, there's so much going on that could be much more dramatic or much more, like, emotionally deep. But then yeah. it all, it stuff yeah. just keeps, it all just kind of happens. <laughs> and it, we don't really sit in anything, I feel. Right. It should be it feels like it should either be a movie about the their dual natures and like their other selves or a movie about like the Romulan 
uh, oppressing the Remans or something. But instead, it's like, but also the Reman is a Picard clone. It just feels very, you know, like too many, too many things going on. Yeah, there's a lot of little little hats in this one. <laughs> this is the only Star Trek movie to not finish number one at the box office on its opening weekend. Uh, it's, of course, the lowest grossing Star Trek movie in the franchise. It's This is just has nothing to do with anything, but it's the first Star Trek movie to not name the cast in the opening credits. And that might be because they'd have to make all the E's backwards. What was going on uh, with? Did you guys uh, notice that? Are you kidding? <laughs> it's supposed to be like a mirror image thing, I guess. But I was just um, thinking it was like Cyrillic or something like, you know, the Romulans or Russia. I, I don't know. I, I just thought, what what year was this again? Like 2002. So this is like just after the peak of new metal. So I was thinking like corn was really big at this time. I could see it. (laughs) That feels right. So that backwards R carries a lot of weight. And like just looking at the Remans, like I feel like you could get some mall goths to go to this movie. (laughs) Yeah, right. Yeah. So you said it wasn't the it didn't close open uh number one in the box office this opening weekend what movies was it up against it was up against made in manhattan <laughs> that's what it lost to mm. oh boy it, that's what it's, beat it it's, oh, it's, yeah it's <laughs> it's first rough. week and then of course you know it is uh coming out at the same time that uh two towers is coming out mm-hmm. um what else was coming out then? Uh, there was a Bond movie, uh, a bad one, oh. but Die Another Day was coming out. And then Chamber of Secrets was coming out, too. So, Man. I mean, this, is, this was a bad time to come you out. You can draw some real parallels between this and Die Another Day, too, if we want to talk about ridiculous, over-the-top action sequences <laughs> that make no sense in a tired franchise. Um, <laughs> I remember the commercials for Made in Manhattan, um, but I don't remember any commercials for Nemesis, so <laughs> it probably has a lot to do with it. I don't Effective either. marketing. I... The only thing I remember from Nemesis was during one episode of Enterprise, they showed a, they showed behind the scenes clips of Nemesis during each commercial break and oh. made a big deal about it. That's the only thing I remember. Okay, okay, that's kind of weird. <laughs> well, this was uh, this was Jerry Goldsmith's final score for a movie. He he died in two thousand four, oh, wow. soon after this came out, and it's an okay score. I. A lot of stuff was cut out of it, and I think that he was really restrained in like what he could really do. Um, they also just use, you know, his his theme from from Star Trek: uh, The Motion Picture a lot in it, which of course is the show theme. But still, let's talk about the cast in the film. And this film was a surprise for some of the cast. Everybody's contracts with the studio were up after the last film. I read that Patrick Stewart was uh, paid almost as much as he made for the entire run of TNG to be Good. in this. So. I think a lot of the budget went to like these, you know, a single picture contract is a lot less economical than getting somebody in for like two or three. And so having to boot everybody's contracts up again was a big part of the expense of the film. And the whole cast is here, although some of them weren't. Marina Sirtis almost didn't come back because I don't think they were going to give her what she wanted. And I believe as the story goes, this is where Jerry Ryan was contacted about possibly being in the film to replace her, to which she was like, why? Why would I be in this movie? Like, I don't have I don't know these characters. I don't have anything to do with this. I'm on. I got Boston Public money. (laughs) So she didn't do that. And luckily, we got Marina Sirtis. Uh, Jonathan Frakes, of course, is back as Riker, although his back hair isn't. Uh, reportedly, he refused to shave his back for his love scene with Marina Sirtis in the film. So they digitally removed his back hair for Whoa. that scene. <laughs> How much did that cost? Too That's much. Like, 
Wow. That's a firm stance Why against back hair. What is the point of that? <laughs> he had to have it for a no... uh, Mission Impossible movie. Uh-huh. <laughs> oh, literally. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. Uh, <laughs> Michael Dorn is back as Worf. Uh, and they don't even bother with an explanation this time. He's just there. I think the consensus sort of headcanon is that he decided he wasn't cut out to be an ambassador, Worf. Uh, or maybe that was in a previous draft of the script. And he doesn't do much in the film. And Dorn is not was not crazy about that. Um, and this is weird. And I can't say that I noticed it in the film. But I read that they pitched his voice down to make him sound more alien. What? Like the director thought that he should sound more alien. Uh, apparently he thought that LeVar Burton's character was an alien too. I don't know why they didn't pitch Jordy's voice down. He's the Neutrogena T-Gel guy. How much lower can his voice go? Jeez. Like, Already has a low pitched voice. That's like part yeah. of his <laughs> yeah thing. But instead, he's like, "I'm not gonna be, na- I'm not gonna be naked." I don't know. Gooey, you're a big Worf stan. I love. Why Worf. does Worf always get? Why does he always get pushed to the side in the films? He's always like the target of the punchline. I think because like, um, because he like one, he's got a big alien forehead, right? <laughs> Well, that, that is that is true. He does. I don't know. And I think it's it's probably. I feel like it's probably similar. Why like there there's at least good Worf stories, but there's not really good like Jordy stories. And I think it's it probably is probably has to do with that they're black men, you know, and they probably just don't know what to oh do God. with them as much, you know, like this the the side scene at the wedding where it's Michael Dorn, Whoopi Goldberg, and Levar Burton. <laughs> <laughs> it's all it's all the POCs in the cast. And it's just like. Wah wah, and they just kind of right, yeah. yeah. They, yeah, Worf at least gets good stuff in the shows and stuff. Like, they they know he's a good character, but yeah, he's never that cool in the movies. I didn't like that he was like hammered or, or hung over at the wedding. Like, Worf's pretty abstemious, like, he's not like a real he'd be party drinking guy. prune juice, yeah, yeah, right. So, I don't know why he was like hung over at the wedding. I think that's what. I felt a lot of that with the characters in this. It, it also reminded me a way it reminded me of Star Trek five was it just felt like the characters almost start to become like kind of parody of themselves. Yeah. And they're there to crack some jokes, you know, whether it makes sense, you know, like why, why does Worf say in the movie, like, doesn't he say like the Romulans fought with honor and Riker yeah. goes, yeah. Yeah, yeah, they did. And it's like, no, they didn't. And Worf would never say that. <laughs> like, <laughs> well, right. Yeah. Supposed, yeah. I I think that was supposed to be like a big moment for Worf to acknowledge that the Romulans fought well. But like okay. they didn't fight well because they got like <laughs> destroyed almost immediately. <laughs> so like the dialogue would have worked if they had actually fought well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah. And for me, I, I can totally that's a great point. I can totally see that they need to like sell that for the end of the movie and the suggested alliance they're gonna have. But they've got that's the longest trip to take in this film. Like these guys staged a military coup and wiped out the rightful government of Romulus. And just because Dina Meyer's there and she wants to have a drink with the Captain Picard, like we're going to deal with them at the end of the movie. Like we're back. It's, it's worse than when we started. Now there's like a power vacuum uh. at the center of the Romulan empire. And it's controlled by generals who murderous generals. Maybe if like, if it was more focused on that, like you could have had a wharf story where he like kind of, kind of like, uh, that one episode where Jordy's like stranded on the planet with the Romulan where you like learn to work together, like give Worf a like learn to 
be friends with a Romulan story, like a side story. They're they're both they're both assigned to yet yeah, to def- defense of uh, the Enterprise E or something like that for boarding parties, and they have to kind of work together, and then they uh, one saves the other, and they go, all right, yeah, you're yeah. okay, something like that. Or a line. They fought hard. They fought well. Yeah, lame. Uh, Tom Hardy's in the film, of course, as Shinzon, and this was Hardy's first major role in a film. And he, of course, went way beyond this to be a successful TV and film star. But he took the failure of the movie very personally. Apparently, he got severely depressed. Uh, He started drinking. He got a divorce. Buddy. And he considered suicide. But he eventually pulled himself together, and he was cast in the movie Bronson in the titular role. Anybody seen Bronson? No, actually, I've I've heard about it. I've never seen it though. Me neither. It's a film by Nicholas uh, Winding Refn. Oh, and it's about a guy who I can't remember his real name, but he changed his name to Charles Bronson, and his he's like a professional prisoner. Like he he made being a, a prisoner, uh, a violent uh, prisoner, like his thing. It was kind of like a, a celebrity, like a YouTube celebrity before YouTube. Like he was just always locked up. Wow. Uh, but anyway, the guy is jacked, that character. <laughs> so this is the start of jacked Hardy. So what I'm proposing is that the failure of Star Trek Nemesis gave us Bane. Yo. <laughs> oh, good point. We never would have got there if he hadn't taken this really hard, spent, had a few lost years, and then like found Jesus or his dogs or something like that and just started pumping iron. And now he's back. He's Bane. I don't know Speaking if I want to live in a world. kind of made the franchise feel tired. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I wasn't really yeah. big on that movie either. So, but I wouldn't want to <laughs> live in a world without Venom. So it evens out. <laughs> Me neither. Me neither. The rest of the cast is rather distinguished. Of course, we've uh, talked about Ron Perlman. Um, Perlman and Hardy became good friends on the set. And uh, Perlman had said in an interview uh, after the release of the film uh, that he loved working with him, found him to be really smart, really a great kid. So I hope to see Ron Perlman in Venom 2. Also, uh, of course, we mentioned Dina Meyer, who's in the film. Uh, She's had a long career in Hollywood. She's been in films like Starship Troopers, Johnny Mnemonic, and Dragonheart. Also, uh, Jude Sicuela is in the film as Commander Saran. He's had a long career in film and TV. He's been in Shawshank Redemption, Glary Glenn Ross, and he played the chief of staff, Mike Novick, on 24 for four years. And, <laughs> oh boy, uh, director Brian Singer has a small cameo in what? the film as the tactical officer, yes, who replaces uh, at Worf when they go down to fight the Remans. Sweet. Um, which, you know, <laughs> at the time, yeah, sweet at the time. Looking back, maybe not so great. It's good for all the, all the Singer fans out there. <laughs> <laughs> Well, of course, you know, uh, Patrick Stewart was Professor X, yeah. but there you go. Uh, Whoopi Goldberg is back as Guinan for that wedding scene, and Will Wheaton appears barely in this film as Wesley Crusher. Uh, LeVar Burton had approached the filmmakers early on and suggested that they ask Wheaton to reprise his role. What's he doing there? Is he back in Starfleet? Is he still a traveler? He's wearing a Starfleet uniform He's got, with an ensign pip. Yes, he is. Well, actually, uh, it's a lieutenant junior grade, uh, and... Wheaton didn't know when oh, they were, okay. yeah, they did, he didn't know when they were filming what he was doing there, and neither did John Logan, who told Wheaton on set that he didn't know, and the audience would have to figure it out. Although there is a deleted scene, <laughs> there is a deleted scene that establishes that he will be the assistant chief engineer on the Titan going forward. They try to explain it in the novels, I believe really? in the novels, like, yes, uh, 
so they wrote a whole series of novels to try to reconcile where things are at the beginning in Nemesis with where things were at the end of Insurrection. Yeah. Uh, and it's been a really long time since I read them, but I <laughs> seem enough. to recall the the thing was that like Wesley like came to the wedding and uh, like appear uh, took a corporeal form just for the wedding and showed up without clothes, so they gave him a uniform. <laughs> okay. Okay. All right. That's I can see the best that. Explanation. Yeah. I guess he didn't bring a gift. <laughs> Probably not. No. <laughs> so after the wedding is over, he just travelers off and the clothes uh, fall to the ground, I guess. He thought they were doing the beta Z wedding first. He was like, well, yeah, that makes sense. Gotta be naked for yeah. this. <laughs> yeah, that's a glaring absence in this film. Um, I've heard different reports, but Majel Barrett uh, was. I think sick at this time uh, with the illness that would claim her life, but she was also working on, was it Earth Final Conflict? I think she was, you know, involved in producing that. So that's sort of why they set up that the Beta Z wedding, you know, will take place later, and they're going to head there uh, before they're interrupted by the events of the film. But yeah, it would have been nice to have seen her again. And of course, Kate Mulgrew appears in the film as Vice Admiral Janeway in a brief cameo, which is clearly not written for her. Those lines could be put in the mouth of any old admiral, the Cheyev, whoever. Uh, but it was nice that she accepted that and we got to see her again. I don't know about this movie, man. Um, it's <laughs> I haven't convinced you it, guys. Well, I mean, I, I'm trying. I, I'm working. I'm working real hard to try to like this film. Um, what strikes me about it, and we've talked about this before, but it's just i don't know if it's lazy or it's homage but there are elements in this film that you know are just clearly plucked from other films in the series you know the elements that are similar to a wrath of khan um you know uh Riker kicking a guy in the face you know off a cliff <laughs> or down a hole the the closing scene and i think this is more telling than they expected it to be but the closing scene has the enterprise in dry dock over earth and they're playing you know, the Star Trek, uh, the TNG theme uh, from the motion picture. And that's how we open, you know, we open with <laughs> seeing the ship in dry dock. So it's almost like they're it's full circle. They're bringing it home, putting it in the dock, putting it away. We're not going to see another Star Trek film for a while. Yeah. I know that walking out of the cinema for me, that's how I felt. I felt like, well, this is, this is it at least for, at least for a while. It, ma it makes sense that, you know, they went to, jj abrams or whatever after this because it it does feel like <laughs> it needs like a new boost you know a new like breath in the series something yeah. new and exciting so yeah i don't know who made that decision you know at paramount because you know of course berman was gone by that time but that's it's such a get me get who's who's hot who's hot get me jj abrams like Sure, the guy was successful, but like, but why J.J. Abrams? What makes you think that J.J. Abrams is the guy to do Star Trek? I mean, he didn't even really want to do Star Trek and jump ship almost immediately for Star Wars when he got the chance. Just seemed like an exciting guy. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> he had a killer pitch. Probably because it, it's like he doesn't need to seem like a Star Trek guy. It just we want. A new... We're trying to get away from Star Trek. Yeah, yeah on a different yeah. type of guy. Yeah, I don't know. I don't agree with it. Yeah, that was actually the thing, because uh, Abrams specifically was not Star Trek. I, I remember the... And, you know, it, you, you see it shared around in a GIF a lot these days, but I remember when he was hyping the film, he went on The Daily Show 
and was and told John Stewart that like I was never a Star Trek fan. And <laughs> why 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 say that? You know what I mean? Like it's because people like me are sitting at home going. I'm gonna skip this one. Do you know what I mean? Like yeah. it's not even it's not even good marketing. Yeah, I, I remember watching the bonus features on the DVD, and he actually like I think he literally says like I wanted to make it like Star Wars or something. So, well, mission accomplished. Yeah. Um, what do you guys think of the Remans? They're cool. I'm fine with the Remans. <laughs> yeah. I wish they would have given Ron Perlman's character more to do than just come into a room and say we have to start the procedure now. <laughs> he said that like 10 times <laughs> I was like I think I'm going to have to start a tally because literally every time he comes into a room he's like we have to start the procedure <laughs> it's time but they look really cool Yeah, I didn't know that was Ron Perlman to be honest uh, giving him a name would be a big start I, yeah instead of just calling him the Viceroy yeah. the entire time apparently in an early draft of the script or just it's not said on screen it was it's Vkruk, V K R U K. So I don't even know how to say that, but just rolls off the tongue. <laughs> and I guess they're psychic, or at least he I is. Guess? Yeah, that was. I did not care for uh, Troy's another psychic assault because they like she's already psychically assaulted in the series, and then they do it again here, and yeah. she asked for time off because it was traumatic, and Troy's <laughs> just like, no. Yeah. Yeah, no. yeah, yeah. We, it's just like if you can withstand these assaults, stay here. Yeah, I was like, oh, right. And there's Such there's even away. there's Ooh. even a deleted scene of her being assault psychically assaulted by Tom Hardy again, and I like, oh. thank God they cut that out. And the third act of that little story is that she uses like psychic Ouija powers to find. <laughs> The, and because every Star Trek film has to end with them searching for a cloaked ship and finding it somehow. So this time it's psychic Ouija power. It, yeah. It well, then he works hand on the thing. Yeah. Which is so weird. It's such a regression because, I mean, look, I, I don't want them to do these, but they're going to do these. So at least let's try to like do them well or just have the 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 victim, you know, it's, you know, get justice or something. But she, like, beats that guy up. <laughs> when the guy does it in TNG to her, the the Karen guy, like, she's, like, trying to kick his ass, like, before Wharf War- walks in and just cold cocks the guy. <laughs> so at least she has some presence. But, yeah, it's just why they do this one more time for the last film of the series. It It would be, like, less weird if there was, like, a different... Like it would be, it make more sense for like a different character to be like, no, you have to withstand it. But like, it doesn't really make sense that Picard would be like that. And it, and then yeah. they they don't they throw it away. They, he's just like, no, you have to. Can you withstand more? Okay, yeah, you're fine. You yeah, know? they never address yeah, right. off the ship. <laughs> yeah, what's your rate meter at? If it's not full, then you're, <laughs> yeah. you're good. Or maybe if it was, he was like, it would make more sense for Picard to be like. All right, we got to get you out of here, and her to be like, "No, I, you know, I, I want to help you. We, we got to stop this mm-hmm. guy. Yeah, whatever yeah, it guess. takes. Yeah, but it, instead, it's just like Picard seems so nonchalant about it. I do think that they are kind of in, an interesting race, though. You know, often when they're doing a new Star Trek film uh, or a series, they try to reach in and find some element of the franchise that hasn't been expanded on, and picking. You know, the long lost, never explained sister planet of Romulus uh, was a good start, mm-hmm. I think. 
Um, I don't know why they're bat people, though. They're also really into knives. <laughs> like, they've all got like a million knives. And all of the knives are... <laughs> His name's like Gil Hibben or something like that. He's a knife tour and he does all these like weird. If you see like an alien knife in a movie or an A's action movie, it's probably him. And they, for the millionth time, use that <laughs> knife that's got like two blades. It's got like a really thick blade, but it's like split down the middle. So there's like two. It's all over um, TNG. You see it and you see it on DS9 sometimes too. Um, this blew me away. Isn't the plot of the next film in the franchise literally about a Romulan miner with a gigantic ship? wreaking havoc on the Federation. Yeah, it, I was going to yeah. say. Isn't that literally the plot of Star Trek 2009? It's like they took the ship from this movie and said, make it spikier. <laughs> literally. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Two lionfishes making out. That's good. And then uh, <laughs> get the guy from Black Hawk down. Yeah, and then we'll just do that. It's too much like post-Nemesis Star Trek now. Like that is like really concerned with Nemesis. It's Yeah, you know, it's interesting because as... <laughs> they really, as as big a failure as this film was, uh, they certainly decided to base an entirely new series of Star Trek on it. Um, I don't think you necessarily had to pick up Picard, uh, you know, with the end of Nemesis. It could have been about anything. But I think it's interesting that they maybe they saw that they needed to redeem this a little bit and mm -hmm. at least maybe put a fourth a fourth act on it. Well, um, if also if you look at like if you look at all the like the covers for TNG movies, it's always got big Picard head and big Data head. And I think it's like, <laughs> Picard how are we going to make something about TNG and not have Data in it? So naturally, it's like, okay, Data's got to be involved, but yeah. he died. So what do we do? So it's like, it can't help but be based on Nemesis. Oh, that's like they're still stuck in that pattern. Yeah, they're like, yeah. we got to talk about Data, you know? <laughs> we need a beam going up into the sky. Yeah. Yeah. They shouldn't have had That's data. an interesting, that's a good theory. What they should have done was made the old uh, guy who's Soong's son. That guy's lore, right? Come on. They're going to reveal his lore. 100%. 100%. Well, they have to. That'd be cool. Or it'll probably Where's be lore? not cool, but that is cool. <laughs> <laughs> uh, guys, let's talk about the Argo. Let's do it. We've waited long enough. It's a space dune buggy, and it comes <laughs> in a shuttle that can only hold it. And honestly, if we're if we're thinking about being efficient... Shouldn't the shuttle just grow wheels? And that's the dune buggy. <laughs> Why is there a dune buggy in this movie? So they movie? can ramp it off the... I yeah. guess it could ramp and then fly. Right? So Picard can laugh a bunch and then we cut to Worf being grumpy in the back and it's funny. Yeah. <laughs> that was the entire it's such gag. such a buzzkill. <laughs> they do love yeah, it just, it's, Worf, yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. It's, it's so impractical. It comes out of, the, out of the, the shuttle and almost flips over immediately. So first of all... Not a wide wheelbase, not a great dune buggy. Uh, and then it has no windshield, so they have to wear goggles. <laughs> yeah, why? Yeah, I don't know if they're just trying to scare him, but Worf cannot hit with that cannon. He's missing on everybody. He should have taken them you all see out. Him bouncing they around got machine in guns there. for He's crap's probably sake. not trying to yeah. hit them, though, because, you know, that would be interfering with another culture. Yeah, they certainly interfere with another culture uh, when they land on a planet that's. They even say, oh, it's pre warp. All right, let's get down there. Let's start shooting at the natives. Yeah. It's pre-warp, but they probably have seen a dune buggy before. This won't freak them out or anything. <laughs> oh, no. No, I just checked. It's a pre-dune buggy society. <laughs> oh, no. What do we do? They only have F-150s, so change yeah. it up. That planet, though, did pave the way for, like, the next decade of 
uh, first-person shooters and, like, their color palette. Yeah, yeah. It just, yeah, it looks like every brown <laughs> game. I was literally going to be like, please, the filter on those scenes. <laughs> I can't. Yeah. So weird. Or it's like, yeah, it's Planet Mexico. Every TV show that goes to Mexico, oh, sure. you know, they always use the sun filter. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it's like, oh, it's all washed out. Yeah, I know. I mean, like, I'm trying to imagine a scenario where Dune Buggy could have been cool, oh. and it's not. It's not this one, but eh, maybe, maybe this it could. seems like something Riker might get excited about. Maybe if Riker was doing it, <laughs> if he was driving the Dune Buggy, doing martial arts and saying one-liners, I think that would have been the full package. <laughs> <laughs> Riker goes home to Alaska. You know, he's got a Hemi. And, you know, like a gun rack in a truck or something like that. Phaser rack in Just a truck. Just give Riker a snowmobile. And he's going around. I think that would be cool. <laughs> or a four-wheeler or something. <laughs> yeah, an ATV. Um, we haven't talked much about the plot. We've talked about some elements of it. Does this plot make any sense? No. <laughs> I kind of knew what was going on the whole time, sort of. You know, it's like... It's. I was thinking that like Shinzon must watch Star Trek because the whole reason that he gets B four in the first place is so he can put him on a planet very close to the neutral zone, and they can pick up positronic signatures from his arm. I don't know how that works, but and so the Enterprise goes to investigate it, and then when the crisis happens or they reach out to diplomatically to the Federation, they're the closest ship, and I'm like, why wouldn't they send them anyway, even if they weren't close? Like they're ostensibly the flagship and it's got the most experienced captain and starfleet on it and they could always like specifically request him anyway be like we will only talk to picard yeah right only picard can go to china yeah right exactly but instead they have to they throw this other robot in (laughs) it felt like they wanted to put b4 in there and then they were just like well how do we connect it because we've got them going down on their dune buggy to get b4 and then he literally has nothing <laughs> yeah. else to do except at the end he's yeah. data how That's do we a connect great it point yeah because my well he also has the thing where they he like betrays them to shinzon too but yeah my like stupid brain was just going why is b4 here why is he here why is he here me too oh they put him here yeah. okay and then i went Okay, makes sense. And I all consideration. And then we forgot about it. Yeah. I was like, I forgot that they did that. (laughs) So my thing with B4, is Data always emitting a signal that can be detected from, like, another star system? Yeah. What kind of... It's a great point. (laughs) ...bandwidth or what power is on that transmitter? I mean, why? Maybe that, that could be something they placed there, too, but... To just, you know, I don't know. So, yeah. I mean, it's part of the plan. I mean, if it was like, if data, if we found out that data had, if data gets in trouble, maybe he, uh, he can flip a switch and he has like a d- distress signal or something like that. And which was never established in the show, but just, you know, say it was. And then so, you know, we, they detect a similar, oh my God, a positronic life form is, is in trouble on this planet. Uh, we have to go check it out. But it's all literally just for convenience and even having before in the first place and then having the little swap with data, which I guess is cool, but they've controlled data before. Like he's been controlled by, uh, you know, like basic programming when Dr. Soong makes him steal the enterprise, Lauren manipulates him with emotions, adding a whole new Android is just the same thing with extra steps. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and now you've got a character who is, you have to, you know, do service to, and they do not do 
uh, in the film, which is uh, yeah, it's just disappointing. Yeah, they definitely reverse engineered him to be there. Yeah. Well, I don't think we figured out if the plot made any sense or not. But uh, do you guys <laughs> know about the Star Trek film number curse? Isn't uh, it all the... I disagree uh, with it. Oh, The even-numbered ones are good, odd-numbered ones are bad? Right. Uh, yeah, I disagree with that. <laughs> Thad, what, what would be the, the standout one that makes you think that that doesn't work? I love Star Trek Three. Okay, okay. I think from the high heights of two, it, it probably seems like it's, you know, not, not quite as good. But. Sure, I'll, I'll give you that, but I love it. Also, um, I mean, this one right here uh, is a good example of <laughs> yeah, how that true. doesn't work. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then if you continue on the numbering, uh, that would make uh, 09, 11, and Into Darkness 10, and I hate Into Darkness. Yeah, it's a polarity reversal. Now the, now the <laughs> even ones are bad. Yeah. I just think that that's it's interesting that I guess maybe when um, because first contact, you know, is, is held to be good. And then this one comes out of nowhere and totally messes that up. So I'm not sure what what would have caused that change if you believe in <laughs> magic. Didn't they know that one? The way this you movie? said that, Aaron, <laughs> you said first contact is held to be good. Does that mean you don't think first contact is good? I think it's the best TNG film, but I I get a better I get a more frisian out of, you know, uh, the best TOS films. I do like it, though. I have heard there. I think there's people of the opinion that like none of the TNG movies are like great. But I, li- yeah. I like First Contact. I like Generations. I like Insurrection. Actually, it's OK. I also hey, like Mikey likes everything. I am. I am a huge <laughs> Insurrection fan. It's not the best movie. Not not by a long shot. But I, I love it. It has heart. Ella, do you think that do you think that Insurrection is uh, is passes the passes muster? Honestly, I'm. It has been so long since I watched these movies. Genuinely, I which <laughs> I don't know what that sign. speaks to for yeah. <laughs> how much I care about them. First Contact is the one that was definitely trying to be like 2001, isn't it? Uh, 2001: A Space Odyssey. Yeah. No, that's a uh, motion picture. Oh, thank yeah. you. Wow, biffed it. <laughs> Anyways. No, I, uh, I, I, yeah, I agree. Um, that uh, First Contact is probably. Uh, the best and it it puts the Borg to bed I mean we don't get like a well Voyager I guess um, uh-huh. so that's I biff that one too but uh, it really uh, goes in on the Borg and I think the Borg are good when they're in little doses and when you're kind of on the outside but like the introduction of the Queen and all that stuff all got pulled into Voyager like I don't really like those aspects of the Borg um, but I mean yeah it's it's snappy it's uh, it's funny it's it's good it seems like they just, they can't quite, so many Star Trek movies, they can't quite get, like, the beat of a movie down, mm-hmm. right? So it just feels like a weirdly long episode. Does that make sense? Like, it just feels kind of <laughs> off? Yeah. That, yeah. All the, it's just, it's kind of like what you said earlier about them being kind of, like, separate, almost. Yeah. They They're just attached. It, yeah, like I had completely for it's been a while since I've seen First Contact, but I had completely forgotten that Jordy got optical like implants. And so when he yeah. turned around, I was like, whoa. Yeah. Yeah. I think yeah. with like something like uh, Khan, it was like it's like a movie like that is based on these like characters, you know, but there wasn't a lot 
as compared to TNG, like as much to go on. And they really do kind of reinvent the characters somewhat. So they they are like characters, you know, but they're like written in a way to like work in a movie for the first time. Like it, like it could work if these are your first time seeing the characters in a way. Whereas like in right, these, right. it's like it is. I mean, obviously, like the movies, a lot of them are competent, but it's like, you know, Picard like these are like. It's kind of like going to see the Avengers almost, or it's like it's a big ensemble and you want to see everyone get their moments and get their stuff in. Yeah. And and you already know you already know their deal. You, you yeah. know every detail about Worf that you could ever want to know. You know? <laughs> yeah, I suppose. Yeah. You've seen him the most, I guess. Yeah, it feels super like artificial. I think it's partly because we especially with TNG, we get, you know, so many seasons of them like growing as characters and going through their arcs and then their arcs come to an end and we're all happy. And it's weird seeing them brought back after their like character arc has ended and we're all finished seeing them. And then it like, it doesn't really do anything. Like it doesn't really continue what they've learned or they've regressed sometimes. It, yeah. It's just kind of weird. That's one of the reasons that I, I really like, you know, Wrath of Khan, but sometimes I feel like I like, Undiscovered Country more because they in Wrath of Khan he's like oh I'm so old what are you like 48 you know <laughs> like, but like when they actually get old they kind of do that again in six and you I don't know I just feel th- those themes resonate I think more and I can't count the number of times that Picard has had to confront his mortality had to confront his lack of family and they just kind of keep doing that I, I kind of want to give them credit though for kind of continuing um, his arc from the last film because you know at the end, end of the last film he's like no I feel young and life begins at 80 or whatever I am now and <laughs> he's he, Picard's real jaunty in this film like he's just kind of like yeah whatever let's do this I'm gonna drive a car we're gonna we're gonna go over here and uh, he's a very different Picard than we've seen in previous films yeah one of the deleted scenes is um, uh, the new like some new officer oh, comes right. on board and right yes. like and he's like, hey, Riker, I'm the new officer. Like, can you tell me anything about Captain Picard? And Riker's like, I got you, buddy. Um, he is not a stickler for the rules. You can call him Jean-Luc. Yeah. And the guy's like, okay. And they I'm all sort smack of chuckle. Yeah. <laughs> right. And Picard comes in and the guy like, it's like, oh, hey, Jean-Luc. And Picard just like, just <laughs> stares him down. And the guy's like, oh, no, he was pulling my leg, wasn't he? But then Picard sort of like, you know, goes on about his business, but he, he, as he's turning, he sort of like laughs to himself, which is like, oh, that was a nice scene. It was kind of funny. Yeah, but and they were going to end the film with that. <laughs> like, I've That's seen. That's true. I I understand why. I saw them. Like, I was like, I get why this is a deleted scene. Yeah, <laughs> the, the, right at the end of that part, I, you know, you might have seen this in a, a GIF or something, but that this is where they introduce the um, the seatbelts. There's the scene at the very end of the film where they have seatbelts, and the whole joke is Picard's yeah. like, "It's about time." Yeah, and then it's it, thirty the camera, seconds of uh, the, <laughs> look at this chair. The ca- yeah, look at this chair at the end of this film where your friend died, uh, and the. Ca- camera pulls out like through the view screen and they play the theme and that was going to be the end of the film like there's 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 no way that they were ever going to use that i don't even know why they shot it that guy that uh xo that comes on that's the stunt casting right that's where you make it brad pitt or something like that and you get somebody because that guy was a nobody i'm no offense to him but it's just some guys like hey i'm the xo and it does not sound exciting like i don't want to watch the adventures of this guy right we've talked about ways that this could be saved but as we wrap up here 
Uh, do you, any of you think you have a magic bullet? Like, what would have really turned this thing around? A different director. Yeah. Different director. I think that's a. I think that's a good suggestion. Frakes is like, I'm right here. <laughs> like, I don't exactly. know why they didn't use Frakes. They didn't, uh, they didn't use Frakes because they thought that Insurrection performed poorly. And compared to First yeah. Contact, it did. But it still did reasonably well. And I think yeah. that the expectation was that he was going to deliver another hit like First Contact, which I think just for a multitude of reasons wasn't going to happen. But I yeah. think if someone like Frakes had directed this... Uh, it could have been a much better story. I mean, obviously, the, the the script would be the same, but he would have done it in different ways and shot it in different ways and actually known what Star Trek is. And yeah. I think it could have been a decent movie. I have to say, for as much as I complain about liking, like, the, the militaristic elements and the technical stuff is, like, the quote-unquote wrong way to like Star Trek. Like, it's about feelings and social issues and humanity i did really like the last scene like it's a it's a space battle where they actually thought about like how the tactics would work and how would you fight a ship that's totally cloaked you know they're tar they're targeting torpedoes on where the phaser hits you know on the on the cloaked ship and they they're they're taking parts of the cloak off to try to draw other people in and then like setting a snare for them and it's totally boring and it's not what i think you should like trek for but i did like that scene <laughs> Do you have a magic bullet to kill kill this this vampire? Uh, yeah, I sort of agree with what's been said. I, I just think if you'd either simplified elements of what the story is about so you could focus more on some of the characters or something, maybe not have a that big, long battle as much. I don't know. I love the battle. Uh, yeah, the battle is cool, but <laughs> I don't know. Maybe less, I think less, uh, there's too many elements going on. I think maybe a a different director, I would agree with that, maybe could have honed it down to something finer than that. Because, like, that's... that's uh, Khan was a good example because it actually is, like, it's there's not a lot going on. And the, all, all the details are these finer points. You know, it's like... It's just, like, yeah. a little bit sprinkled in here and there. But this is, like... Yeah. we entered, There's elements that are just so big that you can't just not talk about them. You know, like before or shinzan or like you really want to know yeah. more and instead it's yeah we don't we don't want to blow through that stuff yeah yeah, yeah. So i would have cut some of that stuff <laughs> and the last battle in khan is you know a lot less flashy than the one in this but everything is is spelled out for everybody usually it's bad when movies like talk down to you but even the most casual viewer understands okay with they can't see each other they're they're gonna try to get up behind each other. They're trying to use you know the space to to attack each other. Like it's it's all very clear and very tense mm. and very exciting. Jen, as a uh, as a avid purveyor of genre films, what do you think could have fixed this? I mean, you know, I know you like it, but made it even better. <laughs> uh, yeah, I think it definitely could be better. Um, I do think a different director, someone who had actually seen episodes of Star Trek, or was it, even if they hadn't seen seen it be open to watching it and don't call LeVar Burton Laverne. Like he just didn't even have any idea what was going on. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> so yeah. I think that was part There's... of it. And then I think like, there, you know, there are some interesting bits there, you know, focus on Picard's family leaving and he sees Shinzon as the, like his family he could still have. There's something there. 
But it was just, it was like they were trying to do like 15 million different things and do like, I know you like the battle sequence, but that like 45 minute (laughs) battle sequence, uh, I was like, I was very surprised when I like the battle kind of started and I paused it and I was like, I'm only like an hour and six minutes into this movie. There's still like 45 minutes yeah. left. And, th- and it, yeah. I mean, it's long. So I think they could have trimmed that up. Yeah. And I know people always want to see like, they always threaten ramming speed, but nobody actually rams anybody. Uh, and Gooey wants to see battle bots, but like, yeah, if the enterprise had grown fists, that would have been cool. <laughs> I don't know what was behind the weird machismo of like, we're going to ram it into him. And then they ram it into him. And it's like, we're going to pull it out. And it's like almost like this sexual, like, <laughs> oh, slow yeah. sequence where they, you know, I just ugh, gross. That's that's the Picard in this, though. He's tearing ass in the dune buggy. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's weird. They, Don't they tear it. Yeah, in the 70s, he's... like the new 20. Yeah. <laughs> yeah right. Yeah. He's looking like John McClane in, in Insurrection. So, like, <laughs> I don't know. It is, yeah, it is. It is tank top. Ella, put your uh, media studies uh, degree to work here. Oh, and no. Fix this film for us. <laughs> I mean, outside of just not necessarily a new director, an entirely new script. Like somebody had to fix the script. But I mean, personally, yeah. I think if they had just leaned into the like melodrama actiony bits, like if Riker had that line about like hell is dark and if they just leaned into that, then yeah. the visual looks of all the villains would make more sense and it would be like more fun to watch. Yeah. I feel, I don't know. I feel like I say it. It's almost like if it wasn't a Star Trek movie, it would have been better. Yeah. Like I still would have been kind of bad, but it would be like not painful. I don't know. I feel like on Discovery, <laughs> I'm always like, I love a bad movie that was made <laughs> with love. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And this is just kind of a disappointing movie that wasn't really made with a lot of love, apparently. Yeah, I think really going for it uh, probably would have been better. Don't don't half-ass it, you know, go yeah, the whole way. You know, go sense. down for, uh, mm-hmm. you know, what, what you believe in. Yeah. Well, unfortunately, we didn't get that film. Um, we got that, in, in a way, we got that in the Kelvin universe uh, where they do kind of go for it um, and delivered three um, sort of interesting, uh, if uneven, films. But I think that pretty much does it for Star Trek Nemesis. Um, now that we've reached the end of the show, uh, we could talk about space dads and space moms. And you've already talked about your favorite captains on previous shows. But what I want to know is this. How do you think your favorite captain would have dealt with Shinzon and the Romulan crisis? That if Janeway was on the Enterprise or on Voyager or a different ship, how would she have dealt with this? Uh, are we talking like a, uh, uh, like a complete reversal where Shinzon is a cloned Janeway? <laughs> oh my god can you imagine um, yes we absolutely are <laughs> um, yes i think janeway would like have destroyed her um <laughs> yeah, think... janeway kind of hates herself doesn't she or at least when she meets herself yeah. <laughs> she's not happy <laughs> yeah no i think J- janeway would definitely come up on, come out on top here i don't care about the romulan empire we gotta kill the other me uh jen what do you how do you think janeway would have handled the political side or you can answer the janeway clone side if you want to i think she would have just blasted him (laughs) (laughs) she's really diplomatic sometimes but other times she is she'll like i think sometimes uh she's like diplomatic to a fault and then other times like She'll just blast him. I think she, she would have just blasted him. 
She would have had that. So I'm, I'm assuming that maybe some of the um, the affection or just grossness that Shinzon throws onto Troy, maybe he threw onto her. And so they're having dinner and she'd be trying to make diplomatic overtures, but he'd just keep trying to touch her hair or something. And then at some point it'd be like, all right, we're done. And just she just goes back to the ship and it's all red alert after that. Right. But she also, I mean, she she took in seven of nine. She might just be like, no, Shinzon, you're you're my son now. You're my daughter now. You're the, seven I need another scorpion. Me. Yeah, right. I need a new child. <laughs> yeah, seven of nine's gone. <laughs> uh, Ella, what about, what about you? The day I asked you, I think you landed on Cisco as being your favorite captain. So how would Cisco have dealt oh, with this? Oh, I just, I forgot that I had said that, but I mean, I think the reason why I said that is because of the scene where he he punches Q. Yeah, right. Uh, <laughs> like he yeah. just would have socked him. <laughs> <laughs> he would have been done right away. He punches Shinzon, uh, and maybe he cuts his hand, and they get the blood, and that's that's all we need to do right there. I do think yes. I think Shinzon would have been more easily to deal with if he had Cisco just being like, no. I'm not going to deal with you. I will punch you out. Because he was, Shinzo was kind of acting like a crybaby the entire time. <laughs> oh, he just needs a dad. Yeah, needs there you go. Dad. He needs discipline. <laughs> a firm authority figure. You didn't learn discipline working in a mine. Yeah. Gooey, um, I think the last time that we talked about this, you were like, Half Picard, yeah. half Cisco. I, I I have some to add with Cisco because I you talked about how like Picard wouldn't worry too much about it, like which mm-hmm. I agree with. I Cisco, it wouldn't even be a thing. It, he would be like, "You're me," and Cisco would be like, "No, we're not the same person." I the yeah. premise is not true, and and then actually there was because there was some parts of the movie where Shinzon was talking about like. Uh, I will forever be the shadow of Picard. And it's like, you don't have, no. What about your life has been? I guess you were thrown on a planet because you couldn't replace him. But like, I don't know. They didn't get that idea across. But if young Cisco was like uh, Shinzo, if he was like, uh, I'm you. And then Cisco was like, no, you're not. Like, maybe that'd make him even more mad and more menacing, you know? Like, no, I'm I wonder you. If, <laughs> yeah, you're not me. I'm me. Uh, I wonder if in the execution of the Dominion War, Cisco would have made uh, friends and allies post Vrenak, of course, on Romulus. And then hearing that they had all been killed mysteriously by someone would have put him more on edge. Mm-hmm. Like he'd be like uh, sort of in Cisco vengeance mode. You could get that one guy to go to go to the clone of him and go, he's a fake <laughs> oh, I know what old Vrenak would say right now. You're a fake. What would the uh, musician Cisco do in this situation? Musician Cisco, the thong song guy. <laughs> oh, oh wow. Um, he's got you know in one of the videos he's got uh the big show the professional wrestler as a background <laughs> yes. actor. I think he'd yes. get him to yes. to do his dirty work. <laughs> Well, now that we've reached the end of the show and for the dangerous and heroic work you've all done tonight, each of you will receive a promotion to the rank of lieutenant commander and you'll be getting first officer positions on your own ships, which, of course, I expect you to stay on until the entire franchise falls apart. Uh, Riker gets married in this film, of course, to Troy, and he gets command of the Titan. What could make you finally leave your first officer position? Thad, 
What about you? I wouldn't even want to be first officer, but... Uh... <laughs> You'd immediately <laughs> jump ship. Yeah, I, I'd rather just fix the stuff. Um, but probably like... Yeah, I don't know. I would never want to be a captain, so nothing. <laughs> I guess it's like the vice president, isn't it? Because you're always like, you know, a heartbeat away from having to be in charge of the whole show. So it is a lot of responsibility. LF, you had been a first officer for a long time. What would make you finally uh, give up that position? Uh, marrying Dana Troy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no doubt. There's another, well, they say it in the film, but I think there's another scene that was deleted that does more, but they talk about like how they have to bring a new counselor on. And they say she, and a woman, of course, could be a counselor, but you can't have a guy counselor in the 24th century. Come on. Well, what is the guy going to wear? Like low cut? <laughs> yeah, who's going to be sexy? <laughs> really big hair. Welcome to the ship. Here's your wardrobe. <laughs> I would really love if they brought the new counselor on and it looked just like Deanna Troy from the back. It's like same super like make him wear the super low cut, uh, thing, <laughs> giant hair. And then he turns around and he's just, he's just perm. beautiful man. That's just the, that's the counselor uniform. I don't care what, uh, Jellico <laughs> right. says. Like. Yeah. Yeah. Jellico's old school. Gooey. What about you? I would, I too would never actually want to be captain, but I guess if I could get a ship that is just a, giant pair of Hulk hands that I go around <laughs> punching out other ships. Right. I'll do it. Yeah. Yeah. The USS banner. <laughs> I want to see that. Uh, Jen, how about, how about yourself? I don't want to be captain. That's not... oh, you guys. <laughs> wow. That is a lot of foot soldiers. way too much responsibility. Like, I, I mean, especially when we see every time, anytime something goes wrong in the show, like, they start, you know what? Starf does not have their backs. They're always like, I'm, you're out. Yeah, that's, wow. Um, they make it look really easy, though, too. But yeah, I don't think a lot of people think about, like, the incredible responsibility of having to do that. I mean, like, I, you know, having a pet is enough for me. Well, Commanders Dalman and Fame and Pearson and Hate, thanks for joining me to talk about Star Trek and the Star Trek universe. If people want to continue the conversation, and they can, at, at EISTPod on Twitter and the Enterprising Individuals Facebook page, where can people find you all online? Jen, where can people find you online? Um, you can go check us out at uh, Rosemary's Ladies Podcast on Instagram. We have a Twitter. We're not really active on Twitter, so go mm -hmm. just check us out on Instagram. Great. Gooey, what about you? You can find me on Twitter at Gooey Fame, and I post about all my other shows and stuff there. So just go find me there. On Twitter. Ella, where can people find you online? Uh, at Generations Geek on social media and wherever you listen to podcasts, and uh, tomorrow night on Discoverage. Awesome. And Thad, what about you? Uh, best place to find me is on Twitter. I'm at Tyrannicus. That's T Y R A N I C U S. Awesome. I wanted to mention that on the most recent episode of Enterprising Individuals, I sit down with Dr. Mohammed Noor, who's the Dean of Natural Sciences at Duke University and a Star Trek science consultant, and we discussed the Star Trek Voyager episode, Favorite Son, and Dr. Noor gave me all the facts on the genetic science we see in the episode and other episodes of Star Trek. Slight spoiler, not actually too realistic, <laughs> but 
<laughs> not quite out of the realm of implausibility. Uh, it's a great chat. You could find it by going to enterprisingindividuals.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks again to my guests for joining me. Thanks to the audience at home. Hope you're doing well in 2020. Stay healthy, stay safe. Hope to see you again in 2021. We're signing off until the next mission. Hailing frequencies closed. Your Honor, a courtroom is a crucible. In it, we burn away irrelevances until we are left with a pure product, the truth, for all time. Oh, man, now, this is so intense. Data is on trial for his life. Like I know. This episode, The Measure of a Man, is based on the Supreme Court's Dred Scott decision of 1857. And every week on Backtracking, we take a look at the real-world events that inspired classic Star Trek episodes. Sorry. Who are you? We're the hosts of Backtracking. I'm Caliban. You will both be taken to the brig and from there to the nearest star base, where you will answer charges for what you have done. And I'm Gooey Fame. This is not a game. This is life and death. You can follow us on Twitter. Backtracking is available wherever you listen to podcasts. You go f*** yourself.